Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, um, I'm hoping uh, to visit St. Paul's United Methodist Church uh, next uh, Sunday and be worshipping with them. And they invited me to preach. And normally I would jump at the chance, but I said, I'm on the holiday. <laughs> I'm not preaching. I'm going to sit in the congregation and actually receive for once. But I do quite like visiting other churches um, and going around and about because you can just say what you want. You don't have to worry too much because you don't know the people. And you can speak from the heart and uh, people are always very polite to you afterwards. <laughs> Until they get home, that is. <laughs> but uh, it's hard to be a prophet in your own home. I'm not just talking about your own church. I'm talking about where you grew up. When acquaintances, family and friends think they know all about you. It can be hard for them to hear what you're saying because uh, sometimes the past can get in the way or your shared experiences can be hard to forget. I remember my first sermon uh, when I went back to my home church, uh, Epsom Methodist, after I'd been training for the ministry for uh, four months, and I climbed into the pulpit with my shiny new clerical collar on, and I found it really hard, really hard. I hardly slept the night before. This is the place where I'd been preaching as a local preacher, and it all seemed very easy. But when I came back, it was tough. And the sermon wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, the content was sound, but I didn't feel it was good enough. And afterwards, a much-loved friend came up to me, put their arm around me and said, where's the old Tony? We want him back. And I have to say, it really hurt as I came back. No one threatened to me, throw me off a cliff or anything like that, but I still found it really hard. And I had a question afterwards as to why I found it hard and, and also wondered whether the people had been really praying for me or whether they'd just been thinking, oh, Tony's come back. I wonder what he's going to be like now he's a minister. I don't know. But it was a tough occasion. Perhaps the congregation didn't know, like Jeremiah... I still had a deep sense of inadequacy. Alas, Sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I am too young. I had to learn to be totally reliant on the Lord, to be secure in Him, to remember those words that God to Jeremiah, don't be afraid of them, I am with you. I will rescue you, declares the Lord. I think part of the problem was that I wanted the sermon to be about the message and not about me. But because of me, people perhaps hadn't heard the message. But over time, I think I've learned how to marry me with the message, if you know what I mean. But I felt gutted that day and I found it was a very hard experience. And although people didn't mean to do so, those words at the end that actually led to discouragement as I went back to college. 
Thankfully, time is a healer, and I've been back since, and it's been wonderful. Let's just think about Jesus for a moment. In humility and obedience, he'd been baptized. And then he was led out into the wilderness where he was tempted. And on returning to Nazareth, he began his Galilean ministry, which included his first recorded public sermon. And it was in his local synagogue. At first, those who were listening were saying, oh, isn't he good? They all spoke well of him. God, isn't this Joe's boy? The boy's done good. They were amazed at his claims and message. He'd focused on the good news to the marginalized, to the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And Jesus points out that they would want him to do the things in Nazareth that they were going to see him do elsewhere if you like, to take care of his own. But instead, he came to reach out to save the whole world. And this is where Joseph's son begins to upset the apple cart in this little passage. His Jewish audience are suddenly made uncomfortable by some stories that he told from the Old Testament. You see, Jesus' mission was to the marginalized but to Jews and Gentiles, like Naaman, the Syrian. And when he tells these stories, the impact was colossal. The Jewish people would have to share their privileges as a chosen people. And as they heard this, they began to be rattled. And in a sense, it's something the gospel should do. It should shake us when we are comfortable. Even Jeremiah was appointed by God to overthrow nations and kingdoms, to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, as well as to build and to plant. You see, the commentator Craig A. Evans points out that Jesus had already made clear in his sermon, that no prophet is acceptable in his own home, town. Now, that word acceptable, uh, dektos, is found in a quotation from Isaiah that Jesus had already used. There's a play on words in Luke 4:19. The prophet is to announce the acceptable year of the Lord, uh, the year of the Lord's favor. The trouble is, Jesus was becoming unacceptable, and he was not in favor. So Jesus' hearers sort of turn when they, he gives these stories, they turn from being really positive to being really negative. And Jesus' hearers suddenly turn from that praise, isn't this Joseph's boy? To think you are, carpenter boy? There's a change in mood. And enraged, they drive him out of the town, intending to throw him off of a cliff. But we're told he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's a very important bit, I think. Then in verse 30, if you read on a little bit, it says that he continues to preach in the synagogues like Capernaum. Let's think about John Wesley for a moment. 
John Wesley must have really caused a stir. And he spent his life outside of the church. And he began methodically visiting prisoners, the poor, and the sick. And this began in sort of 19, uh, sorry, 1730. Let's get the century right. 1730. And he was just a young man, 26, when he started reaching out in this way. And John was often heckled for what he did. He was ridiculed, criticized. Some refused to even listen to him. They walked away. But others were saved and transformed by the gospel that he preached. Think about the Old Testament prophets. They were often out of favor as well, or unacceptable, uh, considered by uh, the people of their times. And rather than proclaiming what people wanted to hear, the Old Testament prophets often spoke truth to power. People didn't like it. And the trouble is, when we don't like something, we often respond with anger. We dismiss out of hand what's being said. And so, the person who delivers the message is judged as well as the message. And that's what happened here with Jesus. You see, we had two stories, verses 25 to 27, very significant. One about Elijah, who provided an unending supply of food for a Gentile woman, and yet makes no provision for an Israelite. The other story was about Elisha's healing of the Syrian army officer. Naaman was cured of his dreaded leprosy, but he was a soldier of a country that was oppressing Israel. So Israel's enemies were being seen to be looked after, but they were the ones who were oppressing Israel. So at that time, Elisha was ministering, if you like, to the enemy. And Jesus, when he told these stories, was keeping his integrity and being obedient to his calling. He hadn't come to be a people pleaser. He had that temptation, didn't he, in the wilderness to please people, to do what people perhaps were expecting, but he resisted. And here, as he begins his ministry, he's actually not going to be a people pleaser. He's going to say what needs to be said. But when they respond with anger, what does he do? Well, he doesn't defend himself or get really upset with them for not uh, accepting what he said. He walks away and goes on his way. He continually stayed obedient to his calling, forgiving those who alienated and abused him. But when they wouldn't listen, he walked on. I think there's actually something really important in this little story. I wonder if you've heard of the phrase, the cancel culture, the cancel, the C-E-L, culture, or the call-out culture of our day, where someone is ostracized or canceled because they've spoken out about something. We see it online, we see it on social media, we see it in person. You will have heard of a lot of people speaking out. J.K. Rowling uh, uh, was uh, a victim, if you like, of the cancel culture. People are shunned 
blanked, dissed, punished, excluded because of the views that they hold. They might be defriended or blocked or boycotted in social media. And a key factor to play in all this is the pressure of the crowd, where people discern that something's unacceptable and therefore the person is completely excluded. Just think for a moment when we've actually, may not have intended it, but been sucked into that kind of culture. Now, the culture's not all bad, first of all. Uh, it's good when people are discerning. Uh, we, we're called, aren't we, to stand against injustice, exploitation, abuse, oppression, violence, and those sort of things. There are many things that we need to make a stand on. But how often in doing that do we actually condemn people themselves and not just their beliefs or their message? That we don't actually address their allegiances or behavior or their views, but we, in a process, exclude them. We're called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And Jesus spent time with sinners. He might not have agreed with them. He spent time with them. And it's not good when Christians particularly are unforgiving or not prepared to give people time and to listen. There was an interesting article uh, in a credo, it was a credo article in the Times recently. Some of you may have seen it from Dr. Amy Orr Ewing. Uh, she's a fellow at the Oxford Centre of Apologetics. And she was actually talking about the cancel culture, and she opened her article with a wonderful quote, and it was from the former Archbishop of Cape Town, uh, Desmond Tutu, who sadly died, as we know, recently. Tutu won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984, and it was for his opposition to the brutal regime of apartheid. Tutu led the country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and was frequently seen crying during the hearings as victims faced and challenged their torturers. And yet he wrote these words, forgiving is not forgetting, it's actually remembering. Remembering and not using our right to hit back. It's a second chance for a new beginning. And the remembering part is particularly important, especially if you don't want to repeat what happened. Here in this situation, the, the crowd sought to cancel Jesus. And I wonder whether sometimes we're in danger of doing that when we disagree with someone, and perhaps all the more quickly these days. Have we sometimes as Christians lost the art of sitting alongside someone who is different from us and listening, yes, disagreeing, but having the debate? Sometimes Christians are frightened of saying anything today because they're dismissed out of hand for their beliefs. You can believe many things, but being a Christian is actually sometimes uh, very difficult. But do we feed that culture so that other people who may be different for us are frightened to express their views 
on something. And so the silent majority doesn't actually get to speak out on issues. There is uh, the right to freedom of speech, but that needs to be handled carefully. But we should be confident enough in our faith to be able to engage with people who have views different from us, not quickly turning to anger and cancelling people. Because when you cancel a person, you have no relationship with them. Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The crowd sought to cancel Jesus, and eventually, as the story of the gospel goes on, Humanity wanted to cancel him forever and put him on a cross. But he gloriously rose triumphant and walked away triumphantly. Jesus is in the forgiving business. He's built a habit of seeking the lost and only walking away when necessary always with a forgiving heart and longing for others to change and loving to the end. Do you know, I think it's a tragedy when we unfriend him, when we find things tough, because it cancels out all the benefits that we could be receiving from our Lord. And I hope we can be part of a culture Because we listen to other people's views, we then can speak our views about the Christian faith so that others may be able to find a friend in Jesus. So what can we learn from this passage? Well, I hope, and I speak to myself, we need to learn to listen, to engage, even to love our enemies rather than instantly blanking them. We need to pray for those who are in our pulpits, those who speak, because they may not find it very easy all of the time. And when we do disagree with someone, walk a distance with them before you walk away. And if they are angry, really angry, don't respond necessarily with the same. Sometimes Christian maturity is we learn to walk away without turning to exclusion and violence. Amen.